last week, I said that we would split it into two parts, and thus we come tonight to look at our Savior's letter to the church at Laodicea, part two. And I'll begin reading with verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're really going to cover tonight verses 19 and 20, say just a few words about 21, and then in fact come, God willing, next week to verse 22, and that will finish the third chapter, and then we'll begin our survey of chapter 4. <clears throat> but there's really two things, or thus there's two things in verses 19 and 20 that I want to focus our attention upon. In verse 19, we have a loving discipline, and in verse 20, a gracious invitation. First notice a loving discipline. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Now there's several things, I think three, that I want to focus on in this loving discipline. It's source, and that's the love of God, or our loving Heavenly Father. Secondly, it's nature, and I want to just talk briefly about the terms, rebuke and chasten. And then it's purpose, and that's the tail end of the verse. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The source of loving discipline. Well, brethren, obviously, it's God in Christ. It's our Heavenly Father. It's the love and mercy of God. Now, that obviously runs contrary, doesn't it, to much of the thinking in our day, even in many churches, where discipline is deemed harsh and unkind and unloving, and unchristlike. Well, the opposite's actually true. Those who do not discipline their children, those who do not discipline their members, are not acting loving towards their children or their members. Discipline is the expression of love, and that's true in every realm, and here we find it from the top down to the bottom. As many as I hate, I rebuke and chasten. That's how some might understand this text. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now this underscores the fact that we need to be rebuked and chastened, right? That's why it's loving. It's unloving not to rebuke or chasten somebody who's heading in a bad way. If somebody was heading in a bad way, you have to tell them. That's the very essence of love. And thus, this underscores, it at least implies the need for correction or discipline. Because we need it, and brethren, quite frankly, we all need it. And because Jesus loves us, he gives it. It's likely that he's referring back to Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest... Um, his correction, 
For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son of whom he delights. Now, I think this also hints at the likelihood that the audience or the the people to whom Jesus is writing, these lukewarm Laodiceans, at least some of them, if not a lot of them, were in fact Christians. Uh, I don't think we have to conclude that they're all Christians. In fact, I'll argue here in a moment that I think it's best to leave it more broad and understand that there's probably Christians and non-Christians mixed in this lukewarm church. But surely, brethren, some of them were Christian because the whole letter is intended to be uh, a correction for them. And the reason he was correcting them or disciplining them was because he loved them. And so as I've said, if love results in discipline, then the absence of it is the expression not of love or compassion, but of hate and indifference. Jesus loves his people, even the lukewarm ones, and thus he doesn't desire for them to stay in that condition, but he wants to awaken them, and he wants to get them out of that condition and into a healthy one. Notice the nature of it. The Greek word translated rebuke means to convict. It um, not always but largely presupposes the use of the word. Rebuke, convict. How, how is a person brought under conviction? Through the word. I, I'll suggest some other ways here in a moment. And then I think this is underscored in the next word. The next word. Uh, chasten, it means to train or correct. So there's an, some, something of a negative and a positive here, isn't there? To rebuke is to expose the wrongdoing. And uh, to chasten is to correct or to train. And so this, I think, largely, ordinarily, is through the word of God. Jesus takes his word read, but especially preached, and he convicts, i.e. rebukes, and he corrects, that is, trains his beloved people. For example, think of Titus 2.15. This is what Paul said to the young Titus. Speak these things, that is, the things that he's been talking about, exhort, rebuke with all authority. And so... He actually tells uh, Timothy the same thing. So Timothy and Titus are, among other things, they are to rebuke. That means they're to preach the word in such a way that the Holy Spirit will take it and will expose the wrongdoing of the people. Brethren, it's not wrong to feel convicted if there's a reason to feel convicted and as long as it doesn't end in conviction, but in correction. You have to be convicted, and then you have to be corrected. And surely we all need to be convicted, and we all need to be corrected. Nobody can be corrected unless they first be convicted. And it's not enough to be convicted if you're not corrected. And look at how Jesus says this. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. I rebuke and 
chasten. I convict largely through the word, and I correct and bring comfort largely through the word. Now, I think it's also possible, and I would even argue likely, that Jesus does this rebuking, chastening, or this disciplining work through other means other than the word, or other means in connection to the word, and I'm thinking about providence and especially afflictions. Um, the Lord does bring afflictions upon his people as a means to rebuke them and as a, a means to correct them. But it's always, it's not just what we might call hard providence. That's what I mean by affliction. But it's hard, it's hard providence or affliction in connection to the word. Because it's always, the word is always there, brethren. The word is always there. The Holy Spirit always uses the word. And he always uses the word to rebuke and to correct. What's the purpose of it? The goal. Well, you find it there at the end of verse 19. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus loves you, in light of the fact that because he loves you, he's rebuking you and he's chasing you, even with this very letter, I mean, if you go back and read the previous uh, verses that we saw last week, it's largely this letter that Jesus is using to rebuke and to chasten the church at Laodicea. And this is the goal, purpose, or end of disciplining. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Perhaps we can say the goal or purpose of loving discipline intends to create within us a strong and earnest repentance. That's kind of uh, wedding the words together, right? The, um, the word rendered zealous, it, it really means to be hot or heated. And it's possible that Jesus is still thinking back to what he said last week in the previous verses, if you remember. He describes them as neither cold nor hot. And I said that you can understand that in a couple of different ways. Um, and uh, it's possible that Jesus is thinking back to that. He's telling them to be hot, really is what it means. Zealous, warm-hearted, fervent. John Gill said, zeal was what was lacking in this church, which is nothing else than hot, fervent, ardent love. Okay, and then he puts it so beautifully in this last little phrase. Love, this is how, this is how he's defining zeal. See, people, they just don't read these guys. They, sometimes you might get the faulty notion that Gil was some old stuffy dude who... who just was all intellectual and, and didn't have a heart for God and didn't have strong affections for God. You might get that impression if you were to look at a picture of him because he looks like he's not happy. But of course, in those days, they always, or they rarely, if ever, smiled in the pictures. But this is how he, John Gill, our old Baptist forefather, described zeal. Listen to this. Love in a flame. Love in a flame. Thus, the question becomes, what is meant by repentance? And you already know that. 
But let me just uh, remind you a few things, especially as it kind of has bearing in this context. Um, perhaps let me suggest there's three elements or layers to, to biblical evangelical repentance. There's a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of life. Now I could give you text for all of those, but I won't because we don't have the time, and I know you already know this. But the word, the Greek word is metaneo, and that word metaneo just simply means to change the mind. To change the mind. That's really what it means. But as we flesh out this word and how it's used in the Old and New Testaments, it's evident it doesn't just mean that. Or perhaps we can just put it like this. It really does just mean that, providing you understand that if you really change the mind, you will of necessity change the heart, which will necessity change the life. It's kind of like dominoes, right? Isn't it dominoes, the little things, you know, you, you push one and it knocks down the next one and knocks down the next one. Well, the one, a change of mind results in a change of heart, which results in a change of life, a change of behavior, a change of direction. And of course, I think this is very important. I mean, sometimes there's been people who've wrongly understood this idea and they just say that repentance is a change of mind that doesn't necessarily produce a change of heart or life. And that's just nonsense. Because true repentance does, it's a domino effect, necessarily. Where the one falls, the next two are sure to fall. But it is, it is very important, brethren, to keep in mind that at the heart of it, it is a change of mind. You have to understand, this is the whole idea of rebuke and correction. You have to understand all that Jesus said in the previous verses. We are, let's say that we're the church at Laodicea. We have to understand that we are lukewarm. Well, let's just go back very quickly. You have to understand who Jesus is. Verse 14. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You have to understand that. You have to change your mind with reference to who Jesus is. You have to understand, you have to change your mind with reference to who you are. You have to know that you are neither cold nor hot. And that Jesus, because of it, is going to vomit us out of his mouth. We have to understand that we're proud and self-sufficient by nature. Verse 17, and Jesus is gracious and benevolent um, in the gospel as he makes, as he offers us, as he supplies to us all that we need in verse 18. You have to understand that all of this is the result of God's love to us, verse 19. And it's intended to make a change, a positive change. Uh, it, it, you have to change your mind, brother. And that's not just true for the sinner. It surely is true for the sinner. Sinner, you have to change your mind. You have to come to see. Now, that's all grace. God does it. But nevertheless, you realize, well, you know what? I now began to see things differently. That's what happens when you begin to become a Christian. When, you, when you're aroused or awakened from your slumber, you began to see things that you haven't hitherto seen. You began to see the justice of God, and you also began to see the love of God in Christ. And, and then all of that results in the change of a heart. We began to feel differently about God, about our sin, and about our Savior. 
And again, this is because the mind and the heart can't be separated. We distinguish the mind from the heart, right? But you can't sever the mind from the heart. When the mind is changed, inevitably the heart is changed. And what does the Bible say about our actions? They're the outworking or or the overflow of what? Our hearts. Do you know how you change your behavior? Let me put it like this. You start by changing your mind. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's all three of them right there. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That is how he acts. You have to start thinking rightly, Christian, about who you are by nature, what you are by grace. You have to change your your thinking, which will result in the change of feeling, which results in a change of behavior. Now, let me just say one last thing about this phrase, be zealous and repent. And that is what I hope, I hope is obvious, and that is it's a command. I mean, this passage really does underscore the responsibility of man. Listen to what he, how he puts it in verse 19. Therefore, be zealous. <laughs> He's telling them to be something, but I'm not. Well, then be it. I'm cold. I'm indifferent. I'm lukewarm. Well, be zealous. That is, do all the things that will create that fire that will strengthen the fire in your heart and soul and put away, that's repentance, anything and everything that will dampen the fire. Brother, it's it's just again and again repetitious, um, and underscoring the basics of the Christian life. And you know what? I've been now Christian 25 years, been a minister 15 years, and I've become less and less apologetic for saying the same old things. I met with somebody Monday, and uh, I thought to myself, I was tempted again to, to be hesitant to say the things that I knew I had to say because they knew them. Maybe I need to come up with something. So on my drive over there, I'm racking my brain. I, I need to come up with something to say to just fix this whole problem. Something new, something simple, something easy, something concise. I got there and I basically told him, you need to change the way you think, which will change the way you feel, which will change the way you live. And you know how you do that? You humbly and believingly Use those things that will put oil on the fire and you humbly and consistently take away anything that would dampen it, basically. Or, as Jesus said, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Now, let me, I kind of gave you some little help there in terms of how to be zealous. Uh, You, uh, to be zealous, if the word zealous means to be, uh, well, remember what, uh, Gil said, love in a flame, if that's what zeal is, love in a flame, then do all the things that puts oil on the fire and stop doing anything that puts water on the fire. But um, let me also suggest, though, as we transition to verse 20, that verse 20 and this fellowship that Jesus offers us is really one of, if not the greatest means to stoke the flame. 
And that brings us then to a gracious invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Surely, brethren, this is one of those great texts of the Bible. Verse 19 is a great text. All these verses are great, great texts. But verse 20 has been more, I think, preached upon, probably used by God to save more sinners or... I, I would say probably Revelation 3.20 in the hand of the Holy Spirit has been used to save so many sinners, probably as many sinners as any other single text in the Bible. And let me just say by way of an introduction to it, our forefathers, and by that I mean largely the, the Puritans, they were fond to preach this text evan, evan, uh, evangelistically. Um, and I think they're right to do that. And we're going to see also that it's right to preach it ecclesiastically because it's coming to a church. But sometimes people today, they're just too smart for their boots or however you want to put that. Oh, these old guys, they always preached it to sinners. But it's not to sinners, it's to saints. I think they knew that. I would say give them the credit. Give them a little bit more credit. Um, In volume two of David Clarkston, who succeeded Owen as the uh, minister of that church, has in, in, in this volume probably uh, 80, let me see, uh, it's the second treatise, Christ's Gracious Invitation to Sinners. It's about 85 pages long, and it's from Revelation 3 and verse 20. But Mr. Clarkston, people today say you can't use that text like that. Well, somebody forgot to tell him. Because the bottom line is this invitation, brethren, comes to the church that was made up of lukewarm saints and hypocritical sinners. And that's just the flat facts of it. And so it does come to everybody tonight. And that's the wonderful thing about it. And you know why that is? Because the sick or the lukewarm saint and the hypocritical sinner, you know what they need? The same thing. They need Jesus. And that's why he tells them to come to him. All right? Let me then suggest three things in verse 20. Uh, With regards to Jesus' gracious invitation. Notice his place, his patience, and his promise. His place. Behold I stand at the door knock. Well by door is meant the door. Or entrance to the church. And thus the imagery is. He's outside the church. The church has neglected him. They've forgotten him. And that's why they're lukewarm. Because he's the one. By his spirit and word. That stokes the flame. Now, I've already said that, that uh, he stands outside the door of the church and he knocks, and the church is comprised of both sinner and saint. All right? That's where he stands. Notice his patience. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, Christ is waiting at the door. The, the verbs, standing and knocking, they're, they're present tense active. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. 
He doesn't just knock once and leave. You know, we used to do that when we were little, right? You go to your neighbors and you knock on the door and you take off. It's not a good thing to do, but we used to do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He stands and he knocks. He, he's standing and he's knocking. And so the concept of knocking underscores what? It underscores desire. Desire of what? Entrance. Brother, this, is a, this text surely is an amazing text on every level. The concept of knocking underscores desire and, long, and longing. Our Savior was exceedingly desirous of entering the church. You find this, for example, in different texts, this idea of knocking. Think of this one. These, this is, um, these are the words of Jesus, Luke eleven nine. 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, in that text, the knocking refers to our knocking on God's door. We desire something. We desire well, prayer in part is, is, um, is communion and fellowship with God. So when we're praying, we're not, yeah, we're asking for things, but surely at the heart of what we're asking for when we pray is that we might have communion with God, right? We're knocking on God's door wanting to get in. But this isn't what's happening. This, what's happening here is Jesus knocking on our door wanting to get in. And... How does Christ knock? Well, if you read Clarkson, or Clarkson, he gives you many, many ways uh, Christ knocks on the door of the church. But obviously, brethren, he knocks in a similar way he rebukes. Remember I said that for mostly he rebukes and corrects us through his word, yes, through providence. And he knocks on our doors through providence, right? He, Jesus gets our attention through providence, right? That's in part the whole point of providence, of hardship, of affliction, to, to, to awaken us and to cause us to, to, to open the door and to hear his voice. But he like I said before, foremostly uses the word. And so he, he takes the word in the hand of his spirit and he knocks on the door of the church. That means, that means, largely speaking, it's through the ministers that Jesus not only rebukes and corrects, but also knocks. Now here's the interesting point. Here you have to kind of flip the or, or turn the corner on the imagery. It's not so much just him knocking on the outside of the door, uh, on the outside on the door of the church, but he's knocking on the door of of the hearts of those inside the church. And that's why he says, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, he doesn't say, if anybody hears somebody knocking on the door of the church, go around and let the man in. No, you have to open the door. He says, if any man hears and opens, I will come into him. Now, it can mean it's possible that he's talking about some corporate revival, right? That happens when, when a church is in a bad way corporately. God, uh, it's the mercy of God that they get revived corporately. 
But there's a big, giant underscoring of individual responsibility in this text. If anyone, that is anybody in the church, irrespective of where they're at, spiritually or religiously, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, listen, I will come in to him. I will come into that individual person by my spirit and dine with him. And listen, and he with me. All right, so we're looking at the patience. He's knocking. He's not just knocking once and then leaving, but he's, as it were, patiently knocking. You, you actually find the same thing. In fact, it's possible that Jesus is thinking about Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 2, where the church says this in Song of Solomon 5, 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Brethren, that text is, that has to be one of my favorite of all texts. Listen to what the church says in, in Canticles 5, 2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. In other words, I'm a Christian. I'm awake. I've been aroused from my native slumber, and yet I'm sleepy. I'm lukewarm, brother. It's the exact same thing. Okay, so she, because he's knocking, right, on, on, on the door in, in Song of Solomon 5, 2. And the church is saying, the bride is saying, I sleep, but my heart is awake. He's beginning to, to prod me. He's awakening me from my slumber. He's beginning to warm up the heart. And then watch what she says. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, and this is what the groom says, open for me. And now he's going to describe her in four ways. He's, Jesus is doing all of this to excite her, to motivate her to open up the door. Watch, he says, open for me. And then he says, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Brother, what a tremendous fourfold description of the church. The old guys would come to a text like this and not only find all of this other great theology that we're finding in Revelation 3, but they would preach the doctrine of the church from a text like that. What a beautiful fourfold description of the church. We're his sister, we're his love, we're his dove, and we're his perfect one. But here's my phrase I'm after. Then he says this, For my head is covered with dew. My locks with the drops of the night. What does that mean? It means he's been out there all night. That's the point. He's been out there so long that his head is covered, is dripping with dew. Because he's patiently, forbearingly, desirously knocking to get access to his beloved bride. All right, so he's patient. Now stop and think of that. Here he is, patiently knocking on the door. Standing and knocking at the door. His arms are open wide. Desirous to find entrance into his church. And then we close with the last thing, his promise. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This phrase, I don't even really know. I mean, I, I got a few thoughts here, but it's really, I don't even know how to cover this um, in a way that's sufficient. It's talking about 
personal, intimate, mutual fellowship and communion with the God-man. Brethren, this is at the kind of the heart of the whole thing. We've entered tonight beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies. And I want to suggest in closing three things about this promise. It's personal, it's conditional, and it's certain. It's personal. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, while Christ knocked on the door of the church, only individuals can open it. Brethren, the preacher can't open it for the members. The daddy can't open it for his children. They have to open it for themselves. Secondly, it's conditional. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. There's a twofold condition to the promise. We must hear his voice and open the door. Right? Do you see that? We have to hear his voice and open the door. Now let me just say, whatever these terms mean, the one is necessary for the other. You have to hear his voice if you're going to open the door. You can't open the door unless you hear his voice. That makes sense, right? We are to hear with the ear of our hearts and open with the hands of our hearts. We used to always say that to the kids when they were little. And sometimes I still say it. This is because one of my children, well, probably all of them at some point or another, I would tell them, you come to God, you come to Jesus by faith. And they, there was always a time when they were younger where they were so confused by that. How do I come to him by faith? And, and, and I mean, how do you, the Bible says you have to come to him by faith. You have to believe on Jesus. But how do I come to him by faith? Well, I would say, I would think at least, maybe sometimes tell them, when God teaches you, you'll know. But I would say, you come to him with the feet, by the feet of your heart. You run to him with the feet of your heart. And you lay hold of him with the hands of your heart. And you see him with the eyes of your heart. And you eat him and drink him with the mouth of your heart. I, I don't know how else to go further than that. You go to him by faith. And this is what we're to do. We're to hear him, which we have to hear him through this, but we hear him with this. And then we have to open the door. What does that mean? We come to him by faith. That's what it means. To open the door is simply an imagery for faith. We must turn from ourself, that's verse 19 at the end, repent, and turn to him by faith, verse 20. But opening the door, or coming to Christ, we have to remember, is the result of hearing his voice. And how do we hear his voice effectually, but by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit? Right? Do you remember what Jesus said? Uh, no man can come to me unless my Father draws him. And, and then he goes on to explain what that drawing means. That's 44. That's John 6, 44. Listen to John 6, 45. He's now going to explain what that drawing means. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens... Oh, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Uh, uh, Verse 45. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What does it mean that the Father has to draw you? Well, then he explains it. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, you have to learn something with the ears of the heart. You have to hear something with the ears of the heart. You have to come to believe something. You have to come to believe that you're a sinner. You have to, become, you have to uh, come to believe that God in Christ is your Savior. And if you're a lukewarm Christian, you have to come to see that you're a lukewarm Christian and that the fire of your soul can only be stoked by the flames of His grace found in Christ. See, He teaches you that. See, brethren, we don't believe, historically we've never understood effectual calling as something that bypasses the reasoning faculties of the sinner. He doesn't bring us to him like a, like a stone. We're not stones. We're people made in God's image. And so he deals with us accordingly. He teaches. It goes right back to everything I've said. Repentance is a change of the mind, the heart, and the will. He makes us willing to come in the day of his power. And what is the result of this efficacious teaching? It says, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. This is how you know. Or maybe I can put it like this. How do you know you've been, you've been taught? How do you know you've been drawn? How do you know you've heard the voice of Christ? Well, he says, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Have you and are you coming to Christ? That's the foolproof evidence that you've been effectually drawn. So you have to hear the voice of Jesus and come to him by faith. Children, Jesus isn't literally knocking on the door of this church building. He's in heaven, but he's present by his spirit. And he's knocking right now. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And he's telling me, he's telling you, open it up and let me in. It's certain. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this is my phrase I'm after. I will come in. Not maybe or perchance, but I will of necessity come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now the imagery of dining obviously underscores fellowship. And this is why we're actually forbidden in other texts. Remember um, 1 Corinthians 5 and, and Matthew 18 or 16, I think it's 18, where we're not to even eat with those who've been excommunicated. Well, it's not so much, the, the issue isn't so much eating. Okay, let's say somebody was excommunicated and, you, and you're driving down the street and you see them over at Arby's getting two fishes for $5. Cajun, both of them. <laughs> and you stop and, to get you some fish, Arby fish as well. It's not like you can't eat with them. Okay, they're they're sitting there eating, so you have to sit on that side of the of the cafeteria. 
the idea behind eating is fellowshipping, right? That's the point. Don't have fellowship with them. You can't have fellowship with them. Why? Because they're to be viewed as non-Christians. Doesn't mean that you're to hate them or to ignore them. You're to love them, but you're to view them as not a brother. You can't have fellowship with a non-Christian, right? That's the point. But the point here is, or thus the point here is this. Our Savior promises to fellowship with every and any person who hears his voice and opens the door. Listen to what Eva Barnes says about this idea of, of coming in and dining. He says, this is an image denoting intimacy and friendship. Supper with the ancients was the principal social meal. The principal social meal. And the idea here is that between the Savior and those who would receive him, there would be intimacy which subsists between those who sit down to a friendly meal together. That's why the table is a meal. Why? Because we together fellowship with Jesus. And that's why heaven is sometimes spoken of as what? A wedding feast. It's, it's not so much that we're going to be eating physically for all eternity as fellowshipping. All right, so this is what Jesus exhorts us to do. And he puts his stamp, his, his, his stamp of faithfulness and certainty upon the promise. And that brings me back to, the, uh, to how he uh, first describes himself. These things says the amen, the faithful, and true witness. Look, I promise you, if you, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and dine with you and you with me. And you can believe that because I am the amen after every promise of God. Exhortation one in closing. Poor sinner, repent, hear his voice, open the door, and enjoy eternal, mutual, intimate fellowship with Christ. He will open the door. Or if you open the door, he will come in. He'll come in. Exhortation two. Six saints, repent, hear his voice, open the door, and enjoy renewed fellowship with Christ. <clears throat> Brother, no Christian is more reconciled to God than another, right? In that sense, nobody's more a Christian than another. But that doesn't deny that some Christians enjoy closer fellowship with Christ than others. While no Christian can ever be unreconciled to God, they can be for a time out of fellowship with God. And here's my proof text, the letter in the book of Revelation to the Laodiceans. Put another way, while all Christians are equally reconciled with God, not all Christians are equally in fellowship with God. We all know that, don't we? I mean, you have to be careful here not to put so much weight on, on, on the emotions and the affections because I may or may not feel like I'm reconciled to God. I may or may not feel like I'm fellowshipping with God. But brethren, surely all of us have to confess tonight 
that we do long to more intimately and biblically fellowship with our beloved Savior. And this is what he tells us. We have to be zealous and repent. Hear his voice, open the door, and he'll come into us and dine with us and we with him. Well, we want to close our time by singing together a hymn that actually is taken from this text, or verse 20, and that's hymn 414.